0: Many of our thoughts, especially uh, negative thoughts, are ego-defending and ego-confirming thoughts. Even the negative ones are there to sort of keep our ego in place. To let go of them, these thoughts, and live in the moment is to risk an emptiness which Zen refers to as facing the void. There's just this moment and this and this in meditation. Jung talked in very similar terms of this empty space in a letter to um, Walter Burnett. He says, with increasing approximation to the center, there is a corresponding depotentiation of the ego in favor of the empty center. Sounding very like the void in Zen or the abyss. Just as the Jesuits translated Tao as God, so we can describe the emptiness of the center as God. Emptiness, in this case, means something unknowable which is endowed with with the highest intensity. I call this unknowable the Self, capital S of course. The whole course of individuation is the confrontation of the ego with the emptiness of the center. So it seems that Jung was very clear about the connection between individuation and emptiness, the emptiness that is the, the intensity of this moment.
1: from a talk given to the C.G. Jung Society of Melbourne by Colin Thompson on Buddhist Mindfulness and Jung. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Colin Thompson trained as a nuclear physicist, working in Australia, Iceland and the UK. An interest in Eastern religions and Carl Jung emerged and he travelled to Zurich in India to study both Jungian and Buddhist practices. Colin runs the Melbourne Mindfulness Centre and Still Mind, where he offers counselling and life coaching incorporating cognitive behavioural therapy and mindfulness. He's a long-standing member of the Jung Society of Melbourne. Colin begins his talk with a journey from the origins of mindfulness through to present day practice. With the Buddha's deep concentration states and modern mindfulness practitioners, including John Kabat-Zinn and Ezra Bader, Colin describes how an attention to the present moment can empower us. Noting and accepting changing bodily sensations, breathing, thoughts and emotions are essential to mindfulness practice. Bringing in the importance of reflection, Tailoring practice to individuals' needs and taking mindfulness out into everyday experiences, Colin speaks to the places where mindfulness and Jungian psychology intersect. This podcast also includes a short mindfulness exercise. We hope you enjoy.
0: Well, thanks for coming out on this cold night and forsaking the Olympic Games. It's uh, good to see you all. Uh, I should just make a very slight correction. I manage a very small computer network at Monash, not the computer (laughs) network (laughs) at Monash. Okay, And so the topic for tonight is mindfulness and Jung. In particular, I'm going to talk about mindful, the modern uh, revival of mindfulness uh, and mindfulness therapy. I'm going to talk about, the uh, in the introduction, the early roots of mindfulness uh, back 2,500 years ago, uh, the modern revival of mindfulness as a therapy. No, Separate, concentrating on times like the 50s, the 70s, and um, more recently in the 90s. I'm going to tell you a little of my personal approach as a mindfulness-based therapist and how I use it in my own practice. And I'm going to spend a bit of time, which I greatly enjoy, with the flavour of mindfulness. A bit less technical at that point. Uh, And finally, a bit about the connections between mindfulness, the Buddha and uh, Jung's psychology. Now while Christians and uh, Muslims and many other religions have meditation traditions, the current revival in mindfulness and interest in meditation I think stems from Buddhism. Um, and it's associated a lot with the Tibetan diaspora for, that caused by the um, invasion of Tibet, I think it was 1959, might have been earlier, I'm not sure of exact dates, but as a result, uh, Tibetan Buddhism spread around the world, um, and there was a lot of us who spent time in India in the 60s and 70s. And as a result, came back maybe in the 70s and 80s and started talking a lot about meditation, practised at Buddhist centres there and even set up Buddhist centres in Australia and in the West generally. Those are the two things that I see as um, being uh, very important in the uh, modern revival of mindfulness. Now, just just as uh, Jesus was a Jew, the Buddha was basically a Hindu. He lived 2,500 years ago in northern India. And there was already, when he was around, a very strong meditation practice available in India. Uh, talk the, the Vedas, the Vedas, the, the um scriptures from it, from Hindu, the ancient Hindu scriptures of the Vedas, the epics of the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, which is part of the Mahabharata, all have meditation aspects to them. So the Buddha was actually taught meditation and initiated in, some, in deep meditation states known as the jhanas, deep, deep concentration states. You can still go to India and probably various Western locations and learn the jhanas, very deep, concentrated meditation states. And after his enlightenment, the Buddha, now the Buddha is a title, just like Christ is a title, the prophet is a title. The title means the awakened one. And I think awakened is a better word than enlightenment. Enlightenment's got a lot of baggage with it. But awakened, the idea that you wake up and see things a bit more clearly, in better perspective, was uh, something that well, happened to the Buddha 2,500 years ago, something he made happen to himself, I suppose. And you can still go to a place called Bodhgaya uh, in northern India. The tree that he sat under, well, it's not the same tree as 2,500 years ago, but it's the granddaughter tree of where he had his awakening. And it's still there, and you can still sit under it. Um, after his awakening, he taught for about 50 years. He's very much a historical figure. And what he taught for the 50 years was largely meditation. And the main sutra that he taught in meditation is the Satipatthana Sutra. And the Satipatthana Sutra is fairly small. It's only about two pages long. You can fit it all on back and forth of this quite comfortably. Um, OK. and in Keeping with the style of Buddhism, there's lots of numbers in Buddhism. In this case, there's four foundations of mindfulness, and we'll look at them in a moment, and seven factors of awakening. But just since this is an erudite group, we'll look at the start of the Satipatthana Sutra. So this is the first foundation of mindfulness, uh, about half of it here, and it goes On whatever occasion, a monk, breathing in long, discerns that he is breathing in long, or breathing out long, discerns that he is breathing out long, or breathing in short, discerns that he is breathing in short, or breathing out short, discerns that he is breathing out short, trains himself to breathe in and out, sensitive to the entire body. And on it goes in this fashion. And that's the style. If you want to read Buddhist, uh, sutras, Buddhist scriptures, you're better to read them with commentary. They do get a little bit turgid and they keep um, re, you know, rather repeating themselves. But even so, we can easily, very easily see here the idea of meditation on the breath, mindfulness of the breath, which is the main practice, one of the main practices that we practice in, uh, in mindfulness today. The four foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutra Uh, bodily processes and here uh, so that was the start of the process of meditation on the body these are things that you can establish mindfulness being very mindful you can be mindful of the body and he mentions breath body bodily processes Um, and the bodily processes are including things like breathing the blood eating it's interesting enough, urinating. Urinating is specifically specified as a bodily process in the sutras. They go into quite some detail at times. Feelings, the only feeling actually mentioned in the second factor of awakening, is the, the second foundation of mindfulness, is pleasure. But of course feelings we're referring here, you can be very mindful of your feelings, you can meditate on your feelings if you like. Feelings such as sadness, anger, rage, love, grief, worthlessness, happiness. Any feeling uh, is something that can be meditated on, can be used as a um, basis of mindfulness. The mind, the third one, the thoughts. Meditating on your thoughts is a pretty tricky process. And the mental processes is the fourth one. So you're getting a bit of a flavor of, um, of mindfulness here with the first two, the body, Sensations and the feelings being, in particular, what the what mindfulness practices are um, are based on. Mental processes for the Buddhists, the mental processes are things like thinking, volition, and death. That's interesting. Death for a Buddhist is a mental process. If you are a reincarnation-based Buddhist, if you believe in reincarnation, then you. Become very mindful at death, you follow your death into the next bardol and the next bardol and the next life so that you can follow it through. If you're not um, a believer in reincarnation, then you simply observe your death as it's happening, as just that's what's happening now, and that's what mindfulness is, about, mindfulness is about being in the present, knowing what's happening right now. For those of you, perhaps, who have. Um, any training or studying psychology of the Cognitive Model of Aaron Beck, you can perhaps here see Beck, fo- the Cognitive Model is very big in modern psychology today. Uh, it's probably not very um, well thought of in Jungian circles because it denies the unconscious, although I believe that you can have your cake and eat it, you can have a Cognitive Model and the unconscious, but Beck wasn't that way inclined. Um, the cognitive model is based on body or sensations, feelings and mind. And that's why I think that I'm a cognitive behavioural therapist, amongst other things, as well as a mindfully based therapist, and the two go together. largely well, actually because they're based much more around things like the body, the feelings and the mind. Get back to the mic. If you practice mindfulness, what benefits, what skills do you expect to, uh, to gain. And this is where I tend to start with, cl- with clients. If, uh, store, if, if uh, mindfulness seems indicated for someone that I'm working with, uh, I'd start here. And just as an aside, I look for three things before I work with mindfulness with a client. One, of course, is that the client, the person I'm working with, is uh, inclined towards it, they think it's a good idea and more and more people are coming to me for that reason because of the, um, uh, because my website and, now, and I'm just advertising that way. And just by the by, if you want copies of these, they're all on my website. You can find these overheads on there if you happen to want to get a copy of them. Um, so the first thing I look for is someone who wants to actually practise mindfulness as a form of therapy. The second thing would be the ability to regulate their emotions, so if they really get overwhelmed by their emotions all the time, then possibly might you need something more powerful in the moment. Mindfulness being a strategy that takes a bit of time sometimes. Uh, and the third thing I would look for is not too much substance abuse it 's very difficult to be mindful if you 're intoxicated. So those are the three things that I 'd look for. but having um, Said that, what are the benefits of mindfulness? Well, uh, one writer has put the four of them up here, and they're a pretty good basis to work on. Uh, Stability of the mind. When you wake up in the morning, your mind usually for the first little while is dull. So that's one end of the spectrum. For a lot of people, the other end of the spectrum is where they spend a lot of time with a very agitated, very fast mind, zappy thoughts, thoughts coming here everywhere, and can't stop them, and going going a little bit crazy at the time, and can't think straight. So that's sort of a continuum from an edge, ag- from a dull mind to an agitated. Some people always have quite a, a dull mind. Um, that can be a case if you if you're strongly depressed as well. Mindfulness tends to bring you into a balance point into a um, a stable mind, a clear mind, a balanced mind, a mind that's quite useful for thinking. A second benefit, a second skill that comes out of a mindfulness practice is a flexibility of awareness. Basically, you choose what you're going to think of. And a a number of people, many find that um, some thoughts are subtly seductive. That is to say, they habitually return to these thoughts. Perhaps it's the thoughts of a wrong that's been done, or perhaps a hopeful lover, or a past pleasant experience, or fantasies. People, and there's lots more besides, of course. So people keep coming back to these thoughts, not by choice in some cases. They sort of seem dragged to them. With a mindfulness practice, you tend to have a choose, choice of what you're going to focus on third benefit, third skill, is self-awareness. Self-awareness of two things. Firstly, the content of your mind. For instance, um, you might learn the sequencing of reactions, say, to a partner when we get angry. A partner might say something like, Oh, um, well, we've got to talk about this again. And I think, and my breathing rate increases. <laughs> I get a bit nervous. And I think, I hate how it always happens this way. And then I think, I shouldn't have to put up with this. And there's waves of anger flowing over me. That's a sequence. And very often, I just know about the last one, the waves of anger. But with, and it can be thought that, we can think that we just go bang straight into that. But with mindfulness, and often just with talking with clients, you can get that sequence there, those few thoughts, the breath, at various places along the line, where the whole process could be you could become more mindful and choose whether anger in fact is the right, the right way to head in this place, and the, the thoughts have been moving you that way. the second part of, under, of benefit of the self awareness benefit is under, understanding how your mind works comes from it 's a bit like you move up from being working on an assembly line where you might be putting two bits together, welding them together, and you don't even know you're building a car perhaps, but you probably do, to moving up to being the supervisor of the assembly line, the assembly line being your thoughts. You move up to the supervisor and you can see the whole pattern and you can choose just how you're going to go about about things from from that uh, vantage point, that improved vantage point. Fourth is reactivity. The fourth um, advantage of mindfulness, and there are certainly more of this, the fourth advantage of becoming mindful of your thoughts, becoming mindful of your breath, becoming mindful of your body, whatever it might be, is reactivity. You learn about being reactive. So if you've, if you've got an itch somewhere, we tend to just scratch it. That's one example of a reactive action. Another example is that um, system of thoughts i put up with a partner before where you might get suddenly very angry. Uh, And the anger seems to be a reaction. Again, somebody does something, you do that. No choice in it. And you become non-reactive. That is to say, you become active. You get get the ability to choose what you're going to... um, how you're going to relate to your internal and external world. And another point about reactivity that I'd say in passing is that, um, in fact, some of those things might have been building for days and days and days without you seeing it building up. More mindfulness, you've got a chance of seeing the anger, the depression, whatever it might be, building up over time. And that all we're reacting to, in fact, is the trigger, the trigger event, the one thing that sets us off. The modern Revival of Mindfulness as Therapy. Question a arises, question arises, and arose for me, uh, and for many psychologists with a, a meditation background, can we do anything better than just teaching, uh, teaching clients, teaching people to meditate? If you teach people to meditate, yes, you get certain benefits. But Kabat-Zinn made a big difference here by sequencing it and Looking at it in a fairly analytic way of how we could use mindfulness to benefit uh, clients. Because just simply teaching to meditate is a little bit unstructured. So, John Kabat Zinn, uh, a modern big name in mindfulness, in mindfulness therapy, he was the first to integrate mindfulness practices into a structured program. His mindfully based stress reduction program commenced in the late 80s and was mostly used in a medical setting. It came first from a doctor um, to help people with medical conditions like cancer and chronic pain. Mindfulness is still uh, a very good treatment for chronic pain. Uh, Some say the only treatment if drugs aren't going to work. He introduced an eight-week structured program at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, which is outlined in his full catastrophe living which he wrote in 1919. You can thumb through the book. I've left it out there along with quite a number of books about mindfulness. He also produces a lot of uh, CDs to go with that course, which, I've, again, I've put out there if you want to look through and just note the titles off, and that's all you can really do in this case. So he was the guy that sort of kick-started it off, and it's the big name in mindfulness in the West in recent times. Certainly the name in mindfulness therapy. And what was his eight-week program? Well, it starts, starts out with teaching people... Uh, eight weeks, it's about a day a week, by the way. Uh, some half days, full days. Uh, and there's ex- expectation of quite a strong commitment in this. Uh, you start off with mindfulness of the breath and we'll look at mindfulness of the breath. We might even practice a little bit of it in, um, in a few minutes. He looks at... Um, so the first practice, and often with mindfulness, generally it is a mindfulness of the breath. A mindfulness of the breath is simply use Well, the breath is in the present. When we're breathing, that's happening right now. A mindfulness is about staying in the present. So we keep coming back to the breath when the mind wanders. Take a few breaths and you find your mind's wandered, you keep coming back to it. That's the practice of mindfulness of the breath and it's where most uh, mindfulness therapy programs start. Uh, he moves on to body awareness, a body scan, which is mindfulness of the body. He seems to be pretty much following the Satipatthana Sutra. Uh, so that you start down your left leg, well I start with the left leg with my clients, and work your way up, up, up to the top of your head, just being aware of all the sensations, all the experiences you're having in the whole of your body. And it, it works in a different way from the breath because it integrates things. You integrate yourself a little bit better, you get a bit grounded. And you, um, it's interesting, you some find some people just can't feel their body, they have no no knowledge, pretty much no knowledge of their body and then you've got to try to work on that and integrate that a little bit a little bit more. And yoga is one way of doing that. In Kabat-Zinn's uh, eight-week program, he does a lot of yoga and you're expected, of course, to go home in the week in between and practice your yoga, practice your mindfulness of the breath, practice your body awareness. One of the most important things that he does is reflect. He gets people to reflect on the awareness exercise. And when you're a therapist doing mindfulness, you have pretty much got to do that every time because there's a lot of misconceptions in mindfulness, as we'll see later. Uh, he does it in a group setting, so you can see that you have one experience, you have another experience, and that's okay. We don't expect the same experience. People have a lot of expectations of what to get, what they're going to get when they do a mindfulness. Often it's to be relaxed, and sometimes it is, but uh, that's not the main point. He has his own seven factors of, uh, of foundations of mindfulness. I've well, that was four from there. I'll put them up a little bit bigger here. So it's. His process works very well and has been very influential because he's done a lot of thinking about it. So he says there's seven things that are important in mindfulness, and I've left the first three off, I'm just giving you a flavour here, with uh, the last four. He says when you're doing a mindfulness exercise, he says this to his clients, the people in chronic pain or whatever it might be, that trust is a very important aspect when you practise a mindfulness exercise. Trust is trusting the technique, or at least a willingness to give it a go and not fight the technique all the time. So sort of a surrender or an acceptance of the technique. Um, but he also says that trust includes following your own intuitions. So you've got to, you've got to be pretty skillful in this. You don't just follow, just do things blindly. You see what's coming back to you, what your body's telling you, what your mind's telling you about this experience. Non striving is an important part of any mindfulness technique. That is, don't try too hard, basically. If you try too hard, grit your teeth, and we Westerners can tend to do that. We can tend, we're going to sit there and we're going to watch every darn breath and we're not going to lose it, and we're going to breathe hard just to make sure that we see the breath even better than we did before. And that's Deemed to, be trying, that's deemed to be striving, and it's better to have non-striving. There's a metaphor put out by the, um, again, well, no, it wouldn't be in the Sodipatthana Sutra, but there's a metaphor associated with Buddhism called the, well, it's basically the violin string metaphor, although I imagine it was the lute or whatever stringed instruments they had 2,500 years ago. And the metaphor is um, a tight, if the string's too tight, the instrument's screeching and that's reckoned to be the striving, so trying too hard. If the string's too loose and floppy, then you don't get any sound at all and that's just not trying hard enough. And the Buddha's way was often said, the meditation way was often said to be the middle way. Not too hard, not too soft. Acceptance is very important in mindfulness. Acceptance uh, is misunderstood very often. Acceptance means uh, this is how it is in this present moment. Maybe I'm angry, maybe I'm relaxed, maybe I'm dying. But whatever it is, it's the truth of the present moment that needs to be accepted. Not that I'm always going to be angry, or that I can't do anything about my depression, or that I shouldn't take any drugs because I'm dying or ill. Acceptance is about accepting the truth of the present moment. This is what is happening right now. It brings you into the present moment. Letting go. Letting go is um, a very important aspect. Just like we said, some of our thoughts are very seductive and we need to learn, um, in particular, to let go of the thoughts we don't want to let go of. And letting go is never pushing away in mindfulness. In fact, in any form of um, psychotherapy, very rarely do you push away. You do occasionally. Very rarely do you push away thoughts. You simply allow them to be, but don't give them a whole lot of oxygen. So anger-producing thoughts towards another person, thoughts of having been wronged, or fantasies about romance, or kicking the winning goal, or uh, or just mundane stuff. These are just allowed to be in the mindfulness exercise, just allowed to be without believing them, as we often do. We often believe our stronger thoughts uncritically. So if we have a thought that, geez, I'm stupid or something like that, it's very easy to believe it uncritically. So the point is that Kabat-Zinn had done a lot of thinking about mindfulness and how to make it presentable as a therapy and presentable to to a Westerner. So what's my approach? I use still mine. I how to title of this slide "Still Mine," my the business name. So I, this is the still mine approach. Um, and here it is. I'm going to give you the formal approach, followed by the individual approach with the next slide. Uh, first thing, of course, with all therapies is you hear the client's story. That goes without saying pretty much. I don't know anybody who starts anywhere else, but uh, no doubt there are forms of therapy that start somewhere else. Um, having heard this, their story, I probably, if it seems like we're going in for mindfulness, into the mind, area of mindfulness, then I'll explain the benefits of mindfulness that we, le- that we listed a couple of uh, slides back. and In particular, I'll try to relate them To a client's situation. So uh, yeah, I'll get on to that later. We then would do a mindfulness of the breath, classic type of mindfulness, a focus on the breath for five or ten minutes, encouraging returning to the breath when the mind wanders, no judgments, and that's that's important. That's the second foundation, I would say, of mindfulness. If I was putting out my find foundations, it would be not judging. So you, if you get dragged away and you come back, you' know, no need to judge that situation. Having a gentle, curious interest in the breath is the best way of doing it. Again, not too strong, not too weak, just hmm, there it goes in. there it goes out. And oh. There's a little gap between the out and the in, so that's where the curiosity comes in because it is an exercise in awareness, nothing else. Debriefing is the important thing here. Debriefing is is very important. As I said in the kabat in view, whenever a client does mindfulness with me, I'll ask them how it was, what happened, what was experiencing. And very often you'll get the... Expri- the um, reply that was relaxing or it was good or something like that and you need to just be clear well that's great that it was good but really what it's about is being mindful about being in the present moment Uh, i had a client recently Uh, she did mindfulness very well in the first week Uh, she then practiced it for a whole week came back told me yeah gee i've got a lot of energy back to my for my thoughts, I can live in the present and I don't have to think about all these thoughts that I used to think about and so I can make better decisions and think through things much better." And I said, great. And this is what you often see. You often see people who make big advances quite, quite quickly. Second week, same person came back and said, oh, well, I did it twice and after the second time I, I sort of felt bad so I stopped doing it. And, I, and, and the point is... You're not supposed to feel any particular way. It's not to get you to feel any particular way. If you feel bad, then you feel bad. And that's what the exercise is. You don't always feel good with mindfulness. So she got all these huge benefits the first time, but because it didn't leave up to her expectations that after any mindfulness session, after a mindfulness of breath, 10 minutes watching her breath, she should feel good, she stopped. So we cleared that up. We discussed it, walked back and now she's sort of back on track and is okay if she has a session where she feels a little bit down at the end of it. So that's to give you an idea of how important that debriefing is. Mindfulness of the breath is something we tend to practice on our chair or cushion. It's important to be able to take that out into the outside world. So the next thing that I usually have my clients do is what I call SOAP, Step out of automatic pilot. Automatic pilot. We're often in automatic pilot. If you've um, driven here tonight, it's quite possible you drove without giving much thought to your driving. We eat without um, thought of that. Sometimes we walk. Sometimes we do a lot of walk, but a lot of uh, work without in automatic pilot, without being aware of what we're doing. So. Um, what I suggest, oh, then actually that's a very, I should point out, there's a very important ability to be able to drive. Remember when you first started learning to drive, you, had to, you just couldn't conduct a conversation with someone in the car. You had to think about where your clutch was and where your wheels were at 10 to 2 and um, where the brakes were, and you better hit that brake before that car stops in front of you. And it, all things had to be thought. And they get automated with time, and we become... you know, So automatic parts are very useful things. But it also can become very habitual and we can miss um, the taste of a peach. Or the sun when we go out in the morning. We can miss a lot of things if we're just on automatic pilot with thoughts whirling around. So um, the next exercise as I say that I often give my clients is um, to choose one activity in the day, about a two-minute activity, to do mindfully. Brushing the teeth is a good one walking in the park or the first couple of minutes of a meal might be a good one. But if you take brushing the teeth, then you mindfully put, being very aware when you're putting the toothpaste on, if that's your chosen task, you start brushing your teeth and you know which tooth you're on. You feel the taste. You are aware of the taste. If you've got an electric toothbrush, you might hear something. So this is all stuff that you are um, very aware of, in the present. The key to mindfulness is being in the present and sensations are in the present, so that's where you go, to the sensations. And the idea of this is to encourage people to get used to being mindfulness, mindful in day-to-day tasks, taking it out of the cushion and into the, wor- <clears throat> into the world. And um, I guess here ends the first lesson. If I get that done in the first session, I'm very pleased, but um, often it takes a good deal longer than that. The next week, the next session, uh, mindfulness of the body will be exchanged for mindfulness of the breath. And you spend a week or um, a week or a few, uh, or or, time, a couple of weeks, just practicing the mindfulness of the breath, of the body, every um, once a day. 15 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, whatever you choose. And the final thing that I add to practice to the formal part of the program is a mini mindfulness exercise. And I thought we might try that now. A mini mindfulness exercise. Takes about three minutes. Let's go. And I'm inviting you, you can either just watch this or you can do it with me. I'm going to try to do it at my, myself. So the first thing we do with a mini mindfulness practice first thing we do is, because it's brief, we want to come into the moment quickly. So we take a very definite posture. So if you're inclined to now, it's sort of an upright posture, dignified, relaxed, back erect, not stiff, and letting our bodies express a sense of being present and awake. And now, if it feels comfortable to you, closing your eyes, the first step is being aware and really aware of what is going on with you right now. Becoming aware of what is going through your mind. What thoughts am I having at the moment? And here again, as best you can, just noting the thoughts as mental events. So we note them and we note the feelings that are around at the moment in particular turning towards any sense of discomfort or unpleasant feelings. So rather than try to push them away or shut them out, just acknowledge them. Perhaps saying, ah, there you are. That's how it is right now. And similarly with sensations in the body. Are there sensations of tension, of holding, or whatever? And again, awareness of them simply noting them. Okay, that's how it is right now. So now you've become aware of your body and what's happening for you. So we've got a sense of what's going on. We've stepped out of automatic pilot and the second step is to collect our awareness by focusing on a single object, the movements of the breath. So now we really gather ourselves, focusing attention down there in the movements of the abdomen, or other breath focus point watching the rise and fall of the breath spending a minute or so to focus on the movement of the abdominal wall moment by moment breath by breath as best we can so that you know when the breath is moving in and you know when the breath is moving out just binding your awareness to the pattern of movement down there gathering yourself using the anchor of the breath to be in the present and we'll do that for just a couple more breaths and now as a third step having gathered ourselves to some extent we allow our, aware, our awareness to expand as well as being aware of the breath we also include a sense of the body as a whole so that we can get more spacious awareness a sense of the body As a whole, including any tightness or sensations relating to holding in the shoulders, the neck, the back, or the face. Just allow the expansion to that area. Following the breath as if your whole body is breathing to the tips of your fingers, tips of your toes, the roots of your hair. And holding it all in this slightly softer, more spacious awareness. Then when you're ready, just allowing your eyes to open and continue mindfully with the next daily activity. So that that drew together a number of aspects of mindfulness, particularly mindfulness of the breath. So I, I recommend that my clients do that about three times a day. And in fact, my own mobile phone goes buzz three times a day to remind me to do it. You can either do the whole three minute sequence or you can just do the breath bit of it, one minute, or you can just ask yourself, where's your mind now? Where's my mind now? Oh, right, that's one thing I, I, I go on with the task. But it's good, it just sort of brings you up and brings you into mindfulness a number of times in the day. Of course you, ha- of course you have to individualize your, pr- your approach. Or I have to individualize my approach for the uh, for the actual client. So as I said before, I relate the benefits we've talked about before, the four benefits, to the client's own story. So if they've told me that they about an agitated mind that's always rushing here and there and so forth, then I'll explain, I'll draw that into the conversation about the benefits of, of, of having a um, balanced mind, the first one. If people talk about anger, perhaps like that sequence I said with a partner where you get very quickly angry, but you can see the sequence if you draw it out, I might use that as an example if if it's come up in the conversation, of mindfulness of the contents of the mind or of reactivity. So the first thing is to individualise it, is to get, once you've got the client's story, to relate the benefits to them personally. Dealing with barriers to the practice is another place where it's, in, where it's very individualised. Some people just go into the practice and just do it and that's it, they're away. Other people have a tremendous amount of time doing nothing for 10 minutes. We Westerners, it's darn difficult to do nothing for 10 minutes, typically. Um, so, you often I'll look for a time that people can practice. And one of the advantages of having a time for practice, you might practice at 5 pm each night before you eat or something like that. One advantage of having a time for practice is you know when you haven't done it, you know when the time's passed, and so um, you can at least be clear about that rather than putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until it's sleeping time. Um, You might have, again, like the person who stopped practicing because they felt bad, you might have to deal with that. There's a lot of barriers. People have tremendous barriers to doing a, a mindfulness practice. Even though they might have come a long way to see me, it might, um, might take them an hour to drive to see me, um, an hour to drive back. But still finding five minutes each day or 10 minutes each day to their practice can be a very difficult thing to do. And that's why it's good to have a, um, a time. Finding negative thoughts. I use uh, favourite there, a little bit tongue in cheek. People have all sorts of negative thoughts, so the session will often be they might tell me about just what's happening at work or with, in their relationships or anywhere, and you'll be always looking to draw out what negative thoughts they're having about themselves. And then how you deal with them. If the question comes up how do you deal with them? And I've put a spectrum of ways of dealing with them from mindfulness to the full cognitive behavioural way of dealing with. So if someone um, say can't cut, co- you know, keeps thinking I can't cope, or I had one client who just always said to herself, dumb. Um, another, another person, he always said, oh, why do I always withdraw all the time? Now these are actually Some of these are actually pretty good questions if you actually answer them. If you, if, why do I always withdraw all the time? Results in me thinking about that question and um, maybe changing things or accepting that that's what I want to do. But more often than not, these go round and round in circles. So you find a person, you find the um, favourite negative thoughts. And you might, if you're going for the full mindfulness approach, so just observing the thought. That I can't cope. That's why, I, and maybe perhaps saying to myself, "I seem to be having that. I can't cope." Thought again, not feeding it, not letting it go round in circles. Just noting it and moving on to whatever's next. Another mindfulness technique might be to go to the breath or a sensation, so that you move from the thoughts to the present moment, and so that you're out. You tend not to be let the thoughts run round again. Typically, you have to keep doing it. Keep getting dragged back to thoughts, keep going back to the, the present. A breathing technique, that's a bit midway between a mindfulness and a, what normally we call a cognitive behavioural therapy technique. A breathing technique is usually, well, for me, I usually teach people a particular way of slowing their breathing and getting it in synchronisation, the in-breath with the out-breath. That's quite a difficult thing to do, so if you've got a lot of thoughts, um, it's, it's a distractive technique that distracts you from negative thoughts. It also, the fact is that your breath is very close to your mind states. So changing your breath tends to change your mind a little bit. Change can have quite a strong effect on emotions. Uh, We all know that breathing slow, well, we've heard the story that breathing slowly can reduce anger. Cognitive behavioural therapy, we're now moving into the space of cognitive behavioural therapy where thoughts are challenged, so that dumb thought, might be challenged by, well, actually, I'm not done. I've got um, a couple of degrees, and I've got a very responsible job, and people, nobody actually, uh, else actually thinks I'm done. So in fact, I'm not done. This would be a way of challenging the thoughts, and that's now in the realm of cognitive behavioural therapy. And the final, the strongest one that I use very little, and my oh, some clients sort of go for this is thought stopping, where you you have that thought, um, I can't cope, say. And you just stop, just say, nope, stop, and go to some other acceptable thought. Or else you might put that thought in a balloon and let it float off, or file it in a particular place in your, filing, in your mental filing cabinet so that you can get it at any time. So these are examples of fairly strong interventions of not allowing the thoughts. <clears throat> but i would give you a, few, a bit of a flavour, some of the flavours of mindfulness. And here's some definitions of mindfulness. Um, This is the the classic one, this is Kabat-Zinn's, the the one you hear quoted most often. Mindfulness is paying attention to the present moment, on purpose, non-judgmentally. So it's got those two key aspects, the present moment, no judgement. Acceptance that this is how it is right now without judgment. Again, right now, no judgment. Nowhere to go, nothing to attain. That's a a slightly different one. And I, I like this one. The complete owning of each moment of your experience, the good, the bad, the ugly. And that's accepting that ugliness happens and that there are times when we're going to have really bad times, and that's the truth of the moment. It's it's ugly. And we don't expect it not to be ugly every time we do a mindfulness exercise. So those are the two two aspects, being in the present non-judgmentally. I've um, picked out out a few um, quotations that seem to speak about mindfulness. I happen to have been reading a book recently um, by Ezra Bader, who is one of my Zen teachers. Um, book called Zen Heart and I'll read you a couple of his quotations about mindfulness. Instead of a habitual fixed view of me we develop a more fluid view. I transform from I as me to I as awareness. We don't have to change who we are our thoughts and our feelings We just have to be aware of, awareness of Just have to be aware of them. And then the point, awareness is what heals. That's his big point, actually. The me stuff will always be there. So those thoughts will always be around. Me stuff will always be there. We just have to learn to hold it more lightly. And this one I like. We are literally addicted to our thoughts. Our thoughts keep happening and we stick with them. And boy, we're not going to let them go. We're addicted. The solution is never about fixing, but rather about staying, especially staying with the fear of helplessness or loss of control. And he says, on experiencing anger, we need to understand that only by withholding the expression of anger, that is by refraining from playing the storyline of thoughts and justifications that accompany it, only then can we move to the next stage which is to fully feel the anger as sheer energy. Fully feel the anger as sheer energy. How many of us can do that? Um, And this this other one I've practised, practised with with Ezra actually, um, the walking meditation. And uh, you can do it in the bush. And it's as you walk around, open-minded, open-eyed, taking in what's uh, with you, what's around you, as I walk, the mind will wander. That's about two steps. With each sound, the mind returns. With each breath, the heart is open. With each step, I tread the earth. So that's and you can just keep saying it over and over again. It's a very mindfulness, settling, connecting to the um, to the bush. I liked Auden's. I came across this quotation of. Um, by ordin to climb the cross of the moment and watch our illusions die. And that's, what, that's sort of what happens when you lose your crutches, lose the crutches of your thoughts and all these little things, fantasies that are around. Um, that's probably further down the track, but I like that one. Thich Nhat Hanh, a, um, a uh, Vietnamese monk who lives in um, France, just like all the words from that part of the world, they seem to have a lot of H's that aren't pronounced. But Thich Hanh, in his book Peace in Every Step, has his um, washing dishes meditation. And part of it is this. If I am incapable of washing dishes joyfully, if I want to finish them quickly so I can go and have dessert, I will be equally incapable of enjoying my dessert. With the fork in my hand, I will be thinking about what to do next, and the texture and flavour of the dessert, together with the pleasure of eating it, will be lost. I will always be dragged into the future, never able to live in the present. So, if you still wash dishes, do it joyfully, according to Tik Nahan. Okay, so, Carl Jung and mindfulness. What would Carl have thought? Well, um, what would Karl have thought? He, we know what Karl would have thought because he wrote so much of it down. We don't know what the Buddha thought of Jung, but we do know what Jung thought of the Buddha. At first blush, it's difficult to reconcile Jung's approach with the Buddhist mindfulness approach. But as is often the case, the deeper we look, the more the approaches come together. The Buddha's approach, as I see it, is comparatively the more analytical. Four noble truths, eightfold noble path, four factors of enlightenment, twelve spokes in the cycle of dependent origination, etc. It analyses the psyche into thoughts, feelings, mental objects and mental processes, into various levels of consciousness and shows how to work separately with each. Modern mindfulness largely reflects this. Compared with this, Jung is much more holistic, with archetypes that represent constellations, complexes that are gatherings of images and ideas clustered around an archetype. The anima, persona, ego, shadow, little s self, big s self, are all largish entities compared with thoughts, feelings, and mental processes, and are a very different partitioning of the psyche. So at first, it looks like a bit of difficulty reconciling them, and I think at that level it, 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 it they don't have much of a dialogue. But the shadow is probably a great place to start. Jung described the shadow as the thing a person has no wish to be, and he continues: if an inferiority is con- is conscious, one has a chance to correct it. But if it is repressed and isolated from consciousness. It never gets corrected and is liable to burst forth suddenly in a moment of awareness. Does that ever happen to us? In observing, allowing the mindful um, allowing and mindfully accepting our negative thoughts as the truth of this moment, we are making the shadow conscious and embracing it, incorporating it. So that mindfulness is in the first instances, largely about incorporating your shadow. Seeing, I think I shouldn't be sad or I shouldn't be angry. But yeah, the truth is I am sad and I am angry. And that's the shadow side of me, so I've got to accept it. And mindfulness is very good at doing that. Many of our thoughts, especially uh, negative thoughts, are ego-defending and ego-confirming thoughts. Even the negative ones are there to sort of keep our ego in place. To let go of them, these thoughts, and live in the moment is to risk an emptiness which Zen refers to as facing the void. There's just this moment and this and this in meditation. Jung talked in very similar terms of this empty space in a letter to um, Walter Burnett. He says... With increasing approximation to the center, there is a corresponding depotentiation of the ego in favor of the empty center, sounding very like the void in Zen or the abyss. Just as the Jesuits translated Tao as God, so we can describe the emptiness of the center as God. Emptiness, in this case, means something unknowable which is endowed with the highest intensity. I call this unknowable the Self, capital S, of course. The whole course of individuation is the confrontation of the ego with the emptiness of the centre. So it seems that Jung was very clear about the connection between individuation and emptiness, the emptiness that is the the intensity of this moment. An ancient Chinese proverb or story tells us that, that there are many routes up the mountain, But the view from the top is the same whichever route is taken. Roots up the mountain are metaphors for spiritual journey. The view from the top is the ultimate experience, whether it's called individuation, nirvana, returning to the source or communion with God. The Buddhist, especially Zen experience and Jungian approach, are particularly compatible, I believe, both being intensely human. Jung was, that is, I guess I'm saying without a strong sort of concept of a, uh, an active god, Jung was fully aware of this compatibility. In talking alchemically in the, uh, of the conjunctio, the conjunctio is the joining of, uh, joining of many things. Uh, eventually, he says in the third stage, Um, He refers to the first two stages of joining as the joining of the body, so integrating your body and mind together. But when he gets to the transfer personal, the third degree of conjunction, and he's talking of a real and deep experience, is universal, merging with the universe. Identity of the personal, and listen to these words, this is Jung. Identifying the personal with the Atman, a Hindu word, a Sanskrit word, the universal Tao. We could only we could compare this only with the ineffable mystery of the Unio Mystica, the Tao of the or the content of samadhi, or the experience of Sartori in Zen, which would bring us to the realm of the ineffable. He seems to find these words from Eastern religions as the only ones suitable to talk about such a deep experience. Later, he said, or later, in fact, this was a month before his death, his friend Miguel Serrano said, Jung received me in a study, dressed in a Japanese ceremonial gown. His Gnostic ring on his left hand, Teilhard de Jardin's The Human Experience by his side. I was once again struck by the magnificent rigor of Jung's mind. He said, I have just finished reading a book by a Chinese Zen Buddhist and it seems to me that we were talking about the same thing and that the only difference between us was that we gave different words to the same reality. So at least as Jung is concerned, the view from the top of the mountain is the same for him as for mindfulness practitioners and I wish you all a great journey.
1: Enjoyed Colin's insightful talk he conveyed how mindfulness helps us notice and accept the ongoing nature of changing internal and external states providing benefits like stability of mind a flexibility of awareness and developing self-awareness Jung's shadow and self archetypes serve as excellent examples of the deep sympathy between Buddhism and Jungian psychology as Colin says whatever form our spiritual journey takes The view from the top of that mountain is the same, wholeness and emptiness as we dwell in the present moment. Thank you for listening and please visit us at www.jungsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page.